morning. morning. I won't do what Dan did. I'm just going to say good morning. Whether you say good morning to me back or not, you know, that's between you and the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. It is seriously good to see everybody this morning, man. Like, I love standing up here. Like, don't get me wrong. Some of you are easier to look at than others, but... um, no, you're like Todd, have you seen yourself in the mirror? <laughs> you know, so no, I just, I love this church. Even just singing right now, just what a reminder it is. That it was a joy for me and I know the other elders and pastors to get to shepherd this church family. It's, it's, it's a privilege and I mean that. So what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be back in Matthew 19. Now, a lot of you are probably going, seriously, Todd, do we ever get to escape Matthew 19? And the answer is No. We're going to stay here. We're going to do the best we can to suck the marrow out of this particular text because I think it is really important for us. Now, just so you know, over the next three weeks, we're going to hit different groups of people. So today what I'm going to try to hit is I'm going to try to hit people that either are married or have been married to fellow believers. Okay, that's going to kind of be the context of today's message is really looking at how do we, how do we treat marriage between people that are both followers of Jesus? Next week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to teach just, well, what do I do, though, if maybe on one instance I'm married to someone that's not a follower of Jesus? What does that look like? Or even, and you're going to catch this from me, but what if I'm married to somebody that claims to be a believer? They just, man, they act way more like an unbeliever. What am I supposed to do now? That's going to be more more next week. And then we're going to finish up with uh, Christians speaking um, on singleness. So our whole heart is, no matter where you might be in this reality, that you will, you will fall onto this. But listen to me. If now all of a sudden, you know, maybe you're single, or you're married to an unbeliever, you're like, oh, well, then I'm out this morning. Don't do that. Each of these mornings are so important because each of you are going to be told about the absolute high calling that God has for you, no matter your marital or single status. And we all need to hear it to know how do we pray for one another? How do we encourage one another? How do we strengthen one another? We're, we're on the same team here. We're a family. And we need to help one another to get through this. And it's a difficult reality. I don't care if you're married or whether you're single. It's, life is just hard. And so listen to these things because they're going to become important. Now, just to kind of catch you up, where we've been going is that we know that Jesus and and the boys and all the rest of the disciples, right, they're they're traveling back to Jerusalem. We we talked about this reality. They're not just traveling back to Jerusalem, but there's the imagery of Jesus going back to ascend his throne. And it's not a throne like we tend to think of. The throne he would ascend would be the cross. The throne that he would ascend would be buried into the ground. The throne that he would ascend would be in a grave. The throne he would ascend would eventually be resurrected to declare that he's not just anybody. And this is important to this morning where we're going today. Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, that means we are to rightfully order our lives around anything that he says, right? He is the king. He's the good one. And this is what he's going back to do. Now, in it, the people that were coming alongside of him, there would have been the Pharisees, specifically in this particular text. They're trying to test him to trip him up because they didn't think of he was who he said he was. So they asked him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can I just divorce my wife for any reason? Just curious. Well, good answer. I'm proud of you. (laughs) But this is the question they're asking because at the time, actually, guess what? Many believed you could. There was a little debate going on in there, and so Jesus responds back, and I, and I love his response, starting in verse 3. After verse 4, excuse me, after they say that, 
He's like, haven't you read who God created them from the beginning and made them, male and female, made them to be? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. The idea is they're sewn together. They're yoked together. There's something so important about the way I've cemented them together. Don't mess with this. Marriage is something you don't toy with. He's wanting them to know that when God created, and if you can just imagine, I talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus was probably the one in some way overseeing this first marriage between Adam and Eve. And his whole heart is, do you understand what I intended from the beginning? Don't think about these excuses or reasons why we would escape marriage. Think about the purpose for which God created you. I feel so often we live by the bottom bar. We need to quit living by the bottom bar and live this beautiful way that God has intended us to live. He didn't just come so that we might live in mediocrity. He comes, didn't just come so that we would survive. He came, and I love this, I'm just rhyming now. He came so that we might thrive. Right? Watch out. <laughs> Don't make me keep going. I grew up on the hard streets of Wyoming. <laughs> we were spitting rhymes all the time. Oh, wait, no, that was Chew. I'm sorry, that's someone else. <laughs> but no, like, seriously, he's like looking at these people going, I didn't intend for marriage to just be expendable. That's something big in mind here. It was so big in mind that he says that statement, and I always say it at the end of every wedding, Johnny, he's back, and I said it at his wedding, I was like, look, man, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I mean, I use that word because I'm cool with old English at that point. But his point in this is, is that when God cemented people together, it is not for people to undo. The only one that can undo marriage is God, nobody else. Now, a logical question came into their head, right? Well, it's like, well, wait, wait a second then, verse 7. Well, then why then did he give us this command this, to give this certificate, which he never gave a command? It was a, an allowance, we find out later on in this. A certificate of divorce to, and I, it's just this word, just anytime I read it, and the word actually doesn't mean send her away. The word literally means to put away. Why did he tell us then to just discard the woman is kind of the idea. It's meant to be absolutely grotesque. It's meant to be this statement and somehow this woman that God had entrusted to him is that now they were able to, if just on the whims of how they felt, just to discard this woman because now that law was not meant to protect. It was not meant to have the guardrails of helping restrain from sin, but it was now weaponized to get the things that I want. Jesus is like, you've missed the point. I had something so grand in mind for what marriage is to be. And to you, it's just trash. He goes on and he says this to him. Man, you're sure. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Man, but from the beginning, it wasn't so. That's not my intent. But the thing we really tried to key in on last week was this idea of hardness of heart. The reason that we, if you look down there, divorce, the reason that we have sexual immorality, the reason that we commit adultery 
is because our hearts are in dire need of transformation. And the reason that Jesus was taking this path to ascend the throne of the cross, to die, be buried, and rise again on the third day was because he knew that you will never change this world without changing the heart of humanity. If you're somebody here today that does not know Jesus, that struggles going, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to do this? You will never live in the way that God intended until you bend the knee to King Jesus and allow him to change your heart. And I promise you, once he changes your heart, you don't become perfect, but the world becomes all new and you start living in a different way. He's saying to them, no, there's something so much grander here. Now where we tend to focus However, whenever we look at this passage, verse 9, look it down there. We tend to focus on divorce. We tend to focus on sexual immorality. We tend to focus on adultery. And Jesus was after their hearts. That's what he's after. That was last week. So you don't have to listen again. Now you know what I preached on. Except it took me like 45 minutes. But this is really where I want to do verse 9. I want to focus in here today. I want us to just pull the marrow out of this text because I think there are so many important realities that are lodged inside of this text that are highlighted to help us understand God's intent for marriage specifically between two people that are followers of Jesus. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about today is two people that are followers of Jesus. What is marriage supposed to look like? And so I'm going to look at kind of four different people. One, I'm going to look at people with healthy marriages. If you've got a healthy marriage, man, I want you to listen today. If you've got somebody right now in our church that you're struggling with your marriage and you're contemplating divorce, I want you to hear this message today. If you're somebody that's already divorced from another follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this message today. And if you're already somebody that's remarried and you had been divorced from somebody that's a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this message today. Because I want you to know the reality of the God that we know. That while on one end, he is expecting us to be people that aren't just surviving, but we are thriving. But he is a God of compassion that knows how to walk us through the deepest, darkest heartaches. To walk us through even when we failed. Because Jesus Christ was on his way back, not to just die, but to deal with the failures of humanity. This is what he's seeking to do. Now, here's what I want to talk about. What does marriage look like then between these followers of Jesus? Now, here's the first word I want you to get in your mind is faithful, okay? Everybody got here. What's the word? Okay, and the idea that we're going to talk about in that is kind of security, okay? But we're going to talk about this idea of faithful. Now, where do I get that? Well, look at the first, the first kind of statement that he makes. I say to you. I love that. See, it's one thing if I come up and I go, man, I say to you. You're going to probably go, what are you going to say? The king of kings and lord of lords comes up here and says, I say to you. That's a whole different ballgame. This idea of I say to you is Jesus wasn't just claiming to be anybody when he's ready to talk on this. He was claiming to be this one who truly is a man. He was right in front of them. He was fully in flesh, but he was also truly God. He is truly God. I almost made him in the past tense. He is truly God. It kind of also gets caught up in a second thing, like in Matthew 5.31 when it's talking about this same thing, that they were, they were using this concept. It was, also, it was also said, he's talking about the way people talk about this idea of divorce, but look at the, verse 32. But I say to you, I've got something different for you. 
Now, the whole thing is found inside of Matthew 5, in which it's this long discussion that it goes back and forth between, you can kind of see it in verse 21, you've heard it said, but I say to you, verse 31, the, the passage we're in, it was also said, I say to you, verse 38, you've heard it said, I say to you. It was just going back and forth because on one end, he was making sure to establish, I am the rule giver, I am Jesus, I am the king of kings, but they were also messed up in their thinking. They were messed up, and you kind of see this like in, in verse 19 when it talks about the idea that whoever relaxes one of these, because what they were doing was is they were making the demands of the law less demanding and the permissions of the law more permissive. They were mangling it. And so in this context, when we talk about verse 9, when he says, I say to you, he was coming into them and saying, the way that you think about marriage is mangled and wrong. And as king of all kings, I'm coming back to tell you what marriage is supposed to look like. I invented it. I was there for it at the very beginning. I'm the one that can speak to it. Now, at the time of Jesus in Judaism, there was massive amounts of divorce. It wasn't so much that they were trying to escape a troubled marriage, and we'll talk about that next week when we talk about kind of the, the exception clause. They weren't wanting to be single. At the end of the day, they just wanted to marry another person. They just wanted out. In fact, here's some of the statements. I went back and I researched a few of them. One guy named Josephus, who was a famous uh, historian, he says, a man may divorce his right wife for whatever cause. I don't remember. Did we talk about that premarital counseling? We better not have. Oh, good. Another guy said this, this ancient right of the husband to divorce his wife at his pleasure is the central thought in the entire system of Jewish divorce law. Another guy said, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Even if he found her another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. In other words, she's expendable. That's crazy to me. But yet we know this living within our culture in so many ways. Sometimes we view that person that we're married to, especially after frustration, after time long enough, we begin to kind of almost demonize them, dehumanize them. And then they just become discardable trash. I think in a big way, it shouldn't be this way. See, earlier on in the book of Malachi, when he was writing to the people, look at verse 13. It just says, in this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears. You're in front of me on the altar and you're crying like little babies. You're weeping, you're groaning because he no longer regard, regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, well, why does he not? Now look at this. Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly kiddos. So guard yourselves in your spirit. By the way, kiddos is in the Hebrew. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says to the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Hence my first point. The opposite of faithless is faithful. 
Our job inside of marriage is, is to not treat people like a piece of trash, but to be faithful. Now, the reason I love the word faithful that's become so huge for me, whether it's talking about parenting, whether it's talking about uh, 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 being a pastor of this local church, is I've oftentimes found we're trying often to make everybody happy, aren't we? How do we make this person happy? How do we make that person? How do we do this? My job is actually not so much to make you happy, but to be faithful. See, in marriage, that's the key. Our job is to be faithful. It's not to be faithless. Three different times in there, he talks about it. Don't be faithful, faithless. So if you're somebody right now who's in a marriage and somebody who is a part of it, that is one of your roles. We must be faithful. Why? Well, I think this whole idea is, is that we're secure. We're faithful to one another because, and I think this, is that it was intended to be a relationship of shared familiarity. We're supposed to be able to truly know each other. Shared depth, we're to experience just steadfastness and steadiness in the midst of just trouble. Shared friendship, we're to know the person. And, and I was just thinking about this with, and I was looking at my wife and we were kind of, we had been talking and I'm looking over and just think what a joy that we've known each other through the seasons and phases of life. Shared intimacy, not just sexually alone, but man, that way in which we honestly get to know that person. Shared legacy, we get to pass something along to the next generation together. Shared faith because we are created by God to reflect him well and we reflect him best when we live as faithful to one another. So for all of you in here right now that are married, let me just say this. The king has called you to be faithful so be faithful. Be that one that creates security inside of your marriage. And if you're not that, man, we want to walk alongside of you. So that's the first one. So the first one in there, marriage between followers of Jesus must be, what's the word? Good job, class. Now here's the other one. Marriage between two followers of Jesus must be, and here's the word, holy. He says in there, now look at down there in verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, that's the first one, and marries another, there's the second one, now look at this, commits adultery? You sully this. You degrade it. You humiliate it. This gift that's been handed to you, you then trash it? Now, on one level, I've heard people before say to me, yeah, Todd, but you know what? It, it really, at the end of it, it only really affects me and her, and that's all that it does. And you're right, it does affect her. See, later, when we look at Matthew 5, look down there with me, or you can look up on the screen. In verse 31, you can see this. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He says that, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, which we'll, we'll look at here in just a little bit, makes her commit adultery. What? Well, on one end, what he's talking about is at this particular time, a woman that didn't have a husband, especially that didn't have an heir, that didn't have sons that could take care of her, she had to remarry. It was the only way she was ever gonna survive in the culture in which she lived in. 
And Jesus' point is, is while you take her and just throw her away as trash, is that then because this divorce was not something I intended, not something that I meant to be, and the two of you then get remarried, not only do you commit adultery, but now you're forcing in an interesting way that woman to commit adultery to protect herself. How dare you do that? And not only that, but look at then what we down in verse 32 again. And whoever marries a divorced woman, because a man is going to marry her, look at that. He what? It compounds. Here's the thing I've learned about divorce. Whenever divorce happens, people always think, oh, it's the best thing. It's the best thing for each of us. It's the best thing for the children. It's the best thing for this. It's the best thing for that. Divorce only compounds and causes more and more and more and more and more problems. Now, don't get me wrong. There's grace in this. If you've somebody that's been divorced, I love that there's grace. Oh, but it causes a mess. And let me just kind of put this together so you can kind of see this. If you divorce for anything other than sexual immorality, we'll, we'll get to that again kind of later a little bit, but we'll also talk a ton about it next week. And remarry, you cause yourself to commit adultery. That's just something you need to know. Second of all, if you divorce and your spouse remarries, you cause her or him, it should be also, to commit adultery. And the third one is if you marry someone who's been divorced, you commit adultery. You sully now, is there grace? Yes, and we'll talk about that grace. Is there compassion? Oh, there's all kinds of compassion. But again, I feel like sometimes within Christianity, we treat grace as this opportunity just to solely whatever we want because somehow God will be cool with it. Missing the fact that God has not called us to mediocrity or called us to subpar mediocrity. He has called us to something so much greater. Don't you dare settle for something so cheap and so small when God is offering you so much more. And so in it, he talks about that. Now in Hebrews, you can kind of see this in, in, in 13 in verse 4. He says, let marriage, look at this, be held in honor Keep it as something to be held among all of you as important, something to be cherished, something to be protected. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Don't, don't let it get defiled. Take care of it. For God will judge the sick, sexually immoral and the adulterous. In other words, King Jesus is saying, don't play with this. Don't toy with it. Now for all of you in here that are married, oh, brothers and sisters, we must protect our marriages at all costs. Not only are they what we talk about all the time, the way in which we put God on display from a positive standpoint. As we're faithful to one another, we show what faithfulness between our triune God looks like. But in the other part of it is the moment we go down the pathway of divorce, it just creates more problems and more problems and more problems. And I found those of you that have been divorced, you know this, is that so many of you are dealing with problem after problem after problem because of this. And he's just saying to them, Man, do you understand the significance of it? So the first one, marriage between two followers of Jesus must be what? Faithful. Oh, that wasn't very good. And it's faithful, Todd. The first one is what? Okay, good. The second one is? Which means also that it's special. 
Now, what do I mean by that? When I say special, let me tell you a story so you can kind of understand what I'm talking about. At one point, I was doing marital counseling for a couple, and she was from the United States, and he was from a Middle Eastern country that had a king. And as we're sitting across from one another talking one day, and he just, he'd kind of been treating her like, again, some throwaway, something that's just expendable. And in this weird moment, you know that moment where the spirit of God just builds up inside of you and it's not anything fleshy and of you, you just, you have to talk to him. And I looked over at him and I said, let me ask you a question. We were over at Millie's, by the way, which is now Beeps. And so God's done some amazing work over at Millie's. I don't think it Beeps, but at Millie's he did. <laughs> I looked across at him and I said, let me ask you a question. If you married the king's daughter in your country, and you treated her like you're treating your wife, what would happen? He looks at me, he goes, he would kill me. I go, that king doesn't hold a candle to the true king. That woman isn't just anybody, she is a daughter of the king bought with the precious price of the blood of Jesus. She is holy, she is special. Don't you dare toy with her. Then I said, with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, nobody could, no, I didn't really. I just, no. If you are married to someone who is a follower of Jesus, they are not just anybody, they are children of the King Most High. They were purchased by the very blood of Jesus, which makes them holy, which makes them special. So marriage between two followers of Jesus must be, what's the first one? Okay, some of you, are, you gotta do better. What's the first one? Second one? Third one. Oh, that sounds like, that's better. Way to go. Permanent. Now let's look at that one. Now what we're gonna do is we're gonna shift to 1 Corinthians. You can even turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 7 if you want because we're gonna be there for just a, a little bit. But what we are going to do now is kind of take a shift in which now in, in chapter 7, what Paul's doing is he's almost given us a commentary on this particular reality that Jesus is talking about in chapter 19. He's going to come back and he's going to reference to it. And I'll, I'll show you what that means in just a second. But in Jewish and Greek, or excuse me, in, in, in Greek and Roman kind of the world, as opposed to like Jewish world, not only could the husband divorce his wife, but the wife could divorce the husband. There was a way in which now they could, they could do it and be free kind of on, on either side. Now what Paul's going to do is, is into this culture, he's going to bring this reality of what Jesus talked about and he's going to take it out of its Jewish context and he's going to put it into kind of its Greco-Roman, Greek-Roman context. Now at this particular time in the world, they too viewed marriages as just something that was just kind of expendable, just something that you could throw away. This guy named Seneca, who's a famous philosopher, he wrote that few women seem to blush at divorce and many reckon their years not by the number of consuls, but by the number of their husbands. They leave home in order to marry and marry in order to divorce. Another guy, Tacitus, he said, divorce at this time was widespread, readily enacted for a wide range of reasons, including social aspiration and personal taste. Marriage at this time wasn't kind of the weird notion of romantic love or kind of the notions of compatibility. For them, oftentimes, it was an arranged marriage. 
It was an arranged marriage in which two families would get together for economic reasons, maybe political reasons, and they'd, they'd put their kids together. And as soon as they gave birth to an heir, oftentimes what they would do then is they would divorce one another. Why? Because in that culture, marriage had just kind of become expendable. And so Paul writes into it, starting in verse 10, and he says this statement to them. He says, listen, to the married, and this specifically when he's talking about this is the, the married that are followers of Jesus. Next week, we'll see in 12 through 16, he'll talk about the married that aren't followers. Both of them aren't followers of Jesus. He says to these married people, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, in this first statement, that word, I give this charge, is not a word that we use very often, right? I don't come into my son's room and go, son, I give you this charge. <laughs> Clean your room. Right, we don't talk that way. So what does it mean to give a charge? Well, to give a charge was like given from somebody that oftentimes had a little chutzpah in their social condition. They were somebody that could speak to it. We might look at it as like a judge giving a summons. When the judge gives a summons, he speaks from a place of authority. Now, the place from authority that Paul speaks here, if you look at it, is not I, but who? Mm. What did we talk about? He's who? King. It was an edict. He said, there's an edict I'm about ready to give to you from King Jesus. In other words, you need to listen. I'm bringing you this edict, and what is the edict, this royal announcement that they need to know about, this thing that now need, they need to rearrange their lives around? Well, here's the first one. The wife should not separate from her husband, and at the very end, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, what's interesting about that is the word should. Now, in our culture, we hear the word should, and it's like, eh maybe I do it, maybe I don't. Like if I told my, again, back to the scenario, son, you should clean your room. He would be like, yeah, I don't think so. This word should is actually not a good word. In fact, the word actually should be because it's a royal charge, must. You must. Don't do it. All the time when I'm in some of the premarital counseling, I always look at him and I say, I want to make sure you know what you're saying to each other when you stand up there. Because you're going to get up in front of all those people and it's going to be ponies and rainbows and puppy dogs and music and fanfare. And everybody's going to go, oh, she looks so beautiful. And oh, look at him, he's crying. And in the midst of it, nobody hears what they're saying to each other. That covenant that we're saying between each other is serious business. I'm making a commitment to stay with them for life. I'm making a commitment where Paul's talking about not to separate, not to divorce. And again, those are two separate words. It's almost as if Paul was saying, I don't care what you call this thing, whether you're calling it separation or divorce, you are not to do that with the particular person that you're married to. The king from on high has delivered his, his royal announcement. This is not an option. We don't give up. This is something that is to be protected. And in the middle of it, he throws these parentheses, but okay, but what if, what if she, she does? 
What if she gets into that point where she does? And some people go, well, see, we're back to she again. But see that little word and in there? Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? If you don't know what that means, ask your parents. One of the greatest ever commercials on TV, Schoolhouse Rock. Change your life. I think that's how I came to know Jesus. You could read this in some ways, but if she or he does, because that and is connecting this together. He or she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Even that word she does is kind of a little bit, we got to kind of toy with that in some ways. It's not just that she does, but the idea of that idea is that she has indeed divorced. If she's already in the state of being divorced, and there's our word should again, which it shouldn't be that, must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. In other words, if you are somebody in this room that was married to a follower of Jesus and the two of you got a divorce for any other reason other than, we'll talk about some of the exceptions that we're gonna, we're gonna go with next week, this idea of there is a place for sexual morality. We'll, we'll talk about that and other things. If that's not the case, then what ought I to do? And he says in here, remain unmarried or be reconciled. On some levels, we think, remain unmarried. One of the things that, in this scenario, I learned to appreciate my mom for was this very thing. After my dad walked away from her and walked away from our family, I remember her and I talking, and she said to me, and it kind of just felt in passing, but I didn't understand how serious it was. She said, Todd, I will fight for our marriage to the very end. Even after announcing that he had had multiple affairs, I will fight, she said. <sighs> I will remain unmarried until there's no possibility left. I saw her walk through some of the lowest moments of her life so when I say remain unmarried, I'm not naive to the fact there is pain, there is heartache, there is difficulty in that decision. Both of them claiming to be followers of Jesus. And she just looked at me and she said, I'm going to fight, I'm going to remain. I don't know how many years after it was, but my dad decided to get remarried and on the very day that he got remarried, she called me up and she said, Todd, I fought for my marriage to the very end, but today I'm free. I'm so proud of her. So proud of the power of God in her life. Even those that choose to get reconciled, right? That's not, that's not easy. And there's a reason you got a divorce and the thought of going back into it, and again, we'll talk about this, only with a follower of Jesus. You're not to remarry one who's not a follower of Jesus that we'll talk about next week. It's hard. But when has the Christian life ever been easy? See, this is what I mean. I feel like we keep making a bottom line Christianity. Let's just, let's just do the mediocre. Let's just kind of get over the bar when God is looking and going to us. No, I've called you to so much more than mediocrity. 
I've called you to see the greatness of my power alive in you. And don't you dare settle for anything less. In fact, Paul, when he had hit this moment, gosh, you know, for him, let me get there. He wasn't so much talking about divorce, but he was dealing with a very difficult issue. And look at verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, three times I pleaded. That word is to beg, to come before the Lord on your face and just cry with him about this, he said, that it should leave me, this particular issue. But watch this. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Oh, hello. You want to be strong? Get in the hot water. And trust God. My mom is one of the strongest women I've ever met. And God used that in her life, even though she didn't want it, even though she prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that it wouldn't be the way that it was. But she learned my grace is sufficient for you, for my Power is made perfect in weakness. So marriage between followers of Jesus must be what? Amen. Marriage between followers of Oh my gosh, faithful. Come on, Todd. Super Bowl's next week. We're cool. It's what? It's what? Okay. It's also? And it's also? It's steadfast. It is in that case that you will learn that you are strong. And the last one is just grace-powered. Now, on some levels, when you treat marriage like that, it's no wonder the disciples come along and they say this, man, if this is the case with a man and his wife, I don't want to get married. Right? I mean, on some levels, if you're single here, let me just say this. If you can avoid marriage, do it. And I love my marriage. I do. I love my marriage. I'm married to a great woman, man. I love who my wife is. I couldn't avoid getting married because she's just too, man, she's awesome. I like had to. No. I love my wife because she doesn't see me as expendable. I love my wife because she is faithful. I love my wife because she is holy. I love my wife because she fights for permanence. I love my wife also, and this is the case, and this is why I use that statement of grace. She's grace-empowered. So often, whenever I hear people get to this point, especially those to just speak to those that maybe are thinking about divorce, maybe those that have been divorced, that are kind of dealing with whatever issues that you're facing now and that, those of you that have been remarried, they'll say something to me, you know, I'm just gonna trust in God's grace. I remember my dad walking up to me and saying to me, Todd, you know what? I just wanna be happy. And so I'm gonna trust God's grace. We were sitting outside of a bar and grill and I remember just being speechless. God, Todd, I'm just going to settle for mediocrity. I'm going to settle for below mediocrity. 
I'll trust God's grace, so I'll leave my spouse to be happy. I'll trust God's grace, so I'll, and here's this on the other kicker, I'll float through life. I'll just coexist with this woman. I'll trust God's grace, and we'll stay together for the, for the kids. Let me just tell you something. That's not grace. That's presupposing upon God, and Paul over and over talked about in the book of Romans, may it never be. That's not how you think about that. I say that because in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul's talking. He says, look, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I get it. I shouldn't be an apostle. But, and I love B-U-T in the Bible, right? Not the other one. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Huge statement. I used to be a persecutor of the church. I used to kill Christians. Do you understand now? I have been brought even so into the family of God, made a son of the king of the universe, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I am not only in this family, but I am now a apostle bringing a royal announcement to the world. Who would have ever thunk that? And if you're somebody sitting here today as a follower of Jesus, you know this. Who would have ever thunk that? I just recently saw a friend that hadn't seen me for years and when we were talking back and forth between each other, I asked him what he did, he asked me what I did and he goes, seriously? (laughs) Who would have thunk it? That's why I had to move from Wyoming. (laughs) Who would have thunk it? By the grace of God, your spouse is who they are. By the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace was not Toward me was not, look at this word, in vain. Well, what do you mean, Paul, not in vain? On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. I love this passage. Once grace impacted his life in a powerful way, once he realized who he was, he realized now that the grace that God had given him was not to settle any longer for subpar mediocrity, to just kind of float through life. That grace had hit him, and now he says in there, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So what you're saying, Todd, is it's Christianity is about working harder. Thankful for the next part. I worked harder than any of them. Now look at this. Though it was not I, but what? Grace got in me. See, Paul experienced Jesus. Once he experienced Jesus, he experienced the grace of Jesus. And once he experienced the good grace of Jesus and his good lordship and his good kingship and he yoked himself to him, Paul's point is, I will never see anything ever the same again. Man, when I came to know Jesus, I'll never forget experiencing that grace for the first time. And maybe some of you remember this, man. When I first came to know Jesus, my Bible, I couldn't read it enough. I would walk up to whoever that was like a follower of Jesus. I'm like, dude, have you ever read this like book of Philippians before? It's incredible. Man, and Romans shut the door. I was so excited. I remember sitting down and reading and understanding why. Because I just naturally worked hard? No. Because I was so smart? My wife would attest differently to that. 
because I'm such a good person. The grace of God that's with me. So often people, when they're kind of looking to improve their marriages, they ask me things like, what's the big secret? Are you ready for the big secret? Jesus. Sounds pretty Sunday school, doesn't it? But it's true. Once you encounter Jesus and to continue to encounter Jesus, you encounter grace. And when you encounter grace, you will never be the same, period. Once you understand the extent to which he loves you, the extent to which he went to make you his very own, the extent to which he made you a part of his family, the extent of the joy that he has, still has for you in the future, you are experiencing grace, and it doesn't matter if you need to climb a mountain high, if you need to go under, over, wherever, you don't care because you have encountered the grace of King Jesus, and you will never view the world the same. So often when people come in to me with problems, they'll say, you know, can you fix our marriage? No, I can't. And you can almost see in there, they're like, well, let's go. I'll say, I can't, but Jesus can. It depends whether or not you want to bend your knee to this king. You bend your knee to this king and you will experience grace. And when you experience grace, you will work harder than any of them. But it won't be you. Don't you dare think it's you. It's the grace of God that is with you. So if you're somebody here today that has a great marriage, the only reason you have a great marriage is grace. Don't you dare walk out of here and go, yeah, we're good. So often I do counseling with people that their marriages are struggling and I'll leave there going, well, at least I'm not them. You, you, don't, you don't mean to. The only reason my marriage is where it's at in its not perfected form, by the way, grace. What if I'm struggling right now and I think I just gotta get out of this marriage? Well, we'll talk more about that next week, but let me just say a word for you. Grace. Don't run from your marriage, run to Jesus. Oh, what if I'm already divorced and the other one's not remarried yet and we're two followers of Jesus? Grace, stay where you are or get reconciled. What if I'm already remarried and man, you just told me I've, I've committed adultery now. Like, well, I was married to a believer, both of us got, what am I supposed to do? Grace, grace. Go to the king, confess it to the king. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, grace. So here's the word of the day. You ready for it? Have you settled? Grace. I bet you never thought there was going to be a message out of grace from Matthew 19 because it seems on some level so hard. But the underpinning of this particular little section, I believe, is grace. If you need prayer today, we're going to be over there. Maybe you might fit in one of those categories. Maybe you've gotten a little uh, arrogant. You've gotten a little bit where you're not 
working through grace on your marriage anymore. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe it's already falling apart. Maybe you're trying to figure out what to do with this remarriage issue. Come over and pray. And you know what we'll pray for you for? Grace. Just grace. And all God's people said, amen. Now let me pray for all of you. Father, for those of you, for those in here today that their marriages are healthy, would you give them grace? Would you not let them settle for mediocrity, Father? Would you absolutely, through the power of your Holy Spirit, plague those who have healthy marriages from keeping away from mediocrity, from just floating, through just going through the system, from getting their lives caught up in the children and missing one another? Father, would you instead allow them to be a couple that, Father, pursues the intent to see your grace, your spirit in them, transforming them into who you intend them to be? Father, for those in this room that their marriages are struggling, that are both followers of Jesus, I pray for them. Would you allow each of them to encounter Jesus and encounter grace and then encounter being able to walk through this, this pain, this difficulty, this heartache, and that they would see that while they are weak, you are strong, to see that my grace is sufficient for you because power is made perfect, not in their own strength, but in weakness. Father, would you help those that are divorced? Oh, Father, the, oh, my heart breaks because I have watched just the pain that happens from that. Father, whether they remain in their singleness or they get reconciled with that person, oh, Father, would they fall in love anew with your son who leads them again to grace. And for those who have remarried that knew they maybe shouldn't have got a divorce, but they did from another follower of Jesus, would today be a day that they come to you in repentance? That, Father, they experience that forgiveness and that they go here not from the shackles of it, but, Father, in the freedom now of what you offer. And so I ask all these things knowing that the words that I've said are merely just words apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you do that amongst our church right now for those people that are married or have been married to other followers of Jesus. And so we give this all to you. Would you bless it in your precious name we pray, amen.